Hello everybody, this is Kim C, and you're listening to The Year of Underrated Stephen King, a podcast where one woman bravely explores the underrated works to give them proper analysis. Welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. It's so great to be with you. Great to be talking about King books, and I can't wait to (laughs) explore this one, my friends, because this novel be a doozy, listeners. Oh my goodness. Bag of Bones. Okay, Bag of Bones. Well, let me first tell you that I chipped away at this novel for the very first time within these past two weeks. First time ever reading this book. It was recommended to me by many and I did enjoy it quite a bit of which we will explore the areas that made this novel real juicy and delectable. However, I must admit, I am having a hard time shaking off a scene in this novel, my friends. And in a sense, I think, as I'm putting together this episode, I feel a little haunted by this book in a way where I can't stop thinking about this terrible part at the end. It's just on repeat in my mind over and over again. So it's been about three days since I finished the story, so perhaps it's still a little fresh in there, still lingering, or it could be I'm just full-on traumatized by one of, let's see, at this point I think I'm in the 30s now in terms of the number of King books I've read, probably mid-30s, I need to do a a complete count, but that's my guess, uh, mid-30s. This climactic reveal, this very dark, 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 heinously violent and deplorable scene that reveals all at the end of this novel is it's gotta be I can't remember any other scenes in King's work that I've thus far read that is this bad friends there have been some bad ones I know I've mentioned a few from Rose Matter and the disgusting monster Norman Daniels there's also been a lot of terrible villains but alas Bag of Bones ladies and gentlemen thus far takes the cake this takes the ace Bag of Bones has provided the most violent and unsettling scene I've ever encountered in a King book. Truly, at least up until this point in my reading. I just, I can't even. This scene, guys, it's, it's tattooed on my brain, friends. Tattooed. It's never, ever, ever going away. Ever, ever. It's just so bad. It's just... Okay, so if you've listened to the podcast for a bit, (laughs) one might deduce that although I love, 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 passionately adore the writing and dark depths of this glorious American writer, your host, Kim C, is a bit of a sensitive and delicate little lamb when it comes to subject matter. 
Here's the thing with that though. I definitely have a very sensitive soul, but because I'm devote I have devoted my life to the academic study, implementation and practice of fiction, I do feel that from that, from my scholastic background, I have a kind of shield. <laughs> it's this armor I've forged for myself over the years and this shield is what helps me stay in one piece when I have to read really, really, really disturbing content. So although I am very much afraid, I am brave because the craft makes me brave, the writing makes me bold, and with the bravery from my academic shield, I'm able to find the finesse, the beauty, and the art behind how the craft is being joined together of said content. I bring this up because it's going to be useful with how I try to explain what the hell happened to me when I read Pack of Bones. So. <clears throat> Before I give you some details on the horrifying scene I'm talking about, what I will say, and this is the reason why I think this book is pretty special, is when the scene arrives, and unfortunately it's pretty endless in its nightmare details, King sadly does not pan away. But, and this is a huge but. Aside from the hard-to-read devastation of it, King's writing is menacingly good. Oh my god. Oh man, folks. So I think, uh, I didn't want to go <laughs> on a huge tangent with this, but I think it's happening. Not planned, unexpected, but this is the power of this story, guys. At least the lore that King cooked up at the heart of this novel. So not only am I pretty sure this is the most, the worst, the most disturbing, unsettling, like, guys, I put the book down and wanted to puke kind of feeling. That's what happened to me. I also, in some beyond me understanding craziness I still don't fully comprehend, I read the scene more than once. I read it several times because, number one, it was like a car accident in the fact that it was so terrifyingly awful, so barbaric and melt my brain graphic and immoral in every human sense of the word that all I could do was stare and think and relive the horror of every moment of it because the horror of it kind of froze time, if that makes sense. Number two, King's writing. In this scene, the writing is incredibly bewitching and electric, and I'm sure constant readers may know what I'm talking about when I say this, but sometimes when you read King, and especially if you're pretty far into a book, particularly a big book, and you're in it, like in it in all caps, with characters, with plot, with suspense, with secrets being uncovered, you are a part of this story. The writing is so damn good that sometimes you feel 100% transported and completely outside your own life and time. Your world has dissolved and there is only this story. Only this event and these people and you're just living it. It's very powerful. It doesn't happen to me a lot, 
with fiction, but it has happened to me more than once with King's work. And I felt it this time, guys. Oh man, I felt like I was in the nightmare scenario. I felt like all had dissolved and I was a part of the terror watching this scene happen on that back road and I was just there powerless to help. And King makes the reader feel like you're watching a war or watching death from the sidelines. There is fight or flight, but there is also freeze. And when reading this scene, friends, the world kind of stopped for me because the human evil was so incalculably horrifying, my brain could not compute what was going on because it felt so real, so awful, so epically bad and tragic. So what happened was, I think King sort of broke through time and space for me, guys. Not in a good way, but in a very dramatic, all-consuming way. The writing felt ancient and raw, and the story felt like it's always been this ancient evil thing, this event of such human ugliness, unparalleled, criminal, depraved, animalistic awfulness. I don't know, friends. I don't know. <laughs> If I'm just losing it due to the roller coaster of this year or the journey of this novel, of which we're going to talk about that here in greater depth in the next section, or just King's writing, just reading his writing, being transported by the power of it. And here's the thing, when I say power, again, it's not necessarily a good thing. It felt like a terrible spell got cast and I was sucked into it. And, but what's so fascinating and interesting is that although I absolutely hated with every cell in my body this scene, I hated how graphic King made it, I felt so wrecked by the gross, macabre terror of it, and yet the writing was so beguiling and real and immense and powerful. I just keep going back to that word because I feel that's the only appropriate way to express it. That in a way, I just respect it. I can't do anything but just respect it, even though I hate it, even though it was very traumatic for me. I kind of stand in awe of it in subtle ways. I know that's really weird, and it's super weird for me too, which is why I have to talk about it with you guys, because I'm really trying to figure it out. So the scene I'm speaking of is in chapter 28 of the novel. I believe it's pretty much the entire chapter, which again, it goes on way, way, way too long. It's toward the very end. And right now, I'm going to talk about a few key details, although I'm not going to reveal much. So if you would like to remain spoiler-free and maybe you have a copy at home and you are curious about what I'm talking about, uh, feel free to pause now and uh, return later. But if you're going to hang on with me, in chapter 28, we have a gang rape with seven men. Super horrific. And at the same time as this gang rape, we have the murder of an eight-year-old child. At the same time. All at once. It's just the worst. 
So my friends, tiny public service announcement here. This novel snuck up on me in that when I first was making my way through it, I was just really smitten. I was loving all the gothic elements of it. And there is a lot to celebrate here. Lots of literary beauty and topics I will discuss, discuss in our next section. But my goodness, the horrifying right hook punch of this tragic, terrible crime that happens toward the very end, absolutely, it just hit me really hard, guys. Hard, so hard. So be warned, friends, this is a very, very, very graphic and terrible and deeply unsettling scene to the point where I feel this is the worst scene I've ever read in my time with King. I, I just can't think of any other scene that I've read thus far that has made me feel this bad and this wrecked and this devastated. Granted, if you guys are aware of worse scenes out there in other novels of his, um, so I'm torn between wanting you to tell me and not wanting you to tell me, but okay, final answer. Don't tell me, let me just experience the pain by myself because if I get a warning about it, I'll just chicken out and I'll never read it. I'll just never read it ever in my life. So, ergo folks, be careful with the final act of this novel, especially if you are a survivor because cheese and rice, holy effing shiitake mushrooms, dear listeners, this scene, well, Let's just say the horrendous crime that the reader has to be a part of, unfortunately, it really works <laughs> with what King is creating in terms of this exploration of asking the reader, what if something so totally awful happened, something beyond every law of human decency, that it was able to curse a generation to metaphorically scourge the earth and poison entire bloodlines of people. Innocent people. These are descendants that had nothing to do with those who participated in the crime. But the evil was so immense and palpable and just unstoppable that it just like curses everybody all those connected via generations are doomed. So it is an extremely powerful story concept for, for sure. And once you read it, even though it's terrible, it works. It really works because the evil done to this particular character in the novel, it makes all the sense in the world that those involved would be cursed forever and ever and ever. And that I think is what King may be exploring in one of the many themes throughout this story. Uh, this one in particular, perhaps humans bring their own damnation. So uh, alas, I went way off the rails in this introduction. Apologies. I was hoping I could contain it and just sort of uh, dance around it, but I could not. So let's get back on track here introducing this story. 
With 1998's Bag of Bones, I believe King had switched to a new publisher. I think he jumped from Viking to Scribner, I think. So it was a cool move for him. It was something he was happy about. And there was a lot of press with this novel and a lot of great interviews. So basically, a ton of good content talking about the story and one of them was an interview with Simon and Schuster where King talks about the where the idea for this book came from and it started with his own lake property in Maine and he asked himself what if there was a ghost in my house and he went a little further with it and asked well, why would there be a ghost in my house? What would make a spirit linger in a place? And to that, he sort of explored it and said, well, for revenge, they're sticking around for vengeance. And this is his direct quote, someone who is murdered would not rest easy until they got vengeance on their murderer. And then the story started to come together. So what's also really awesome about this novel and what I'm going to explore in greater depth in our next section is that King was thinking and channeling gothic literature with the inception of these ideas and he wanted to create a ghost story but more than that he wanted to create a gothic tale perhaps modern gothic about secrets which is the heart of many gothic stories and motifs more on that in a bit i'm gonna nerd out um, on some literature in our next section but this 1998 novel is 529 pages in the american hardcover and king has been quoted and really liking this book he even told simon and schuster in the interview he loves it he loves this book he's pretty passionate about it and for me, as I was making my way through the novel, I can tell there was a lot of elbow grease put into it. And what that means is I think King is really writing his ass off in this story. And what I, when I say that, I think he's pulling out strong writing and he's putting great stuff on every page. And he's taking the classic concepts of modern Gothic and using that as inspiration, but also filling it with his own magic. So we got a lot of good stuff going on here. And what's interesting about Bag of Bones is in regards to why we're exploring it on the podcast is many people have either had very negative things to say about it, saying it was boring, really drawn out, they couldn't get into it. And I'm going to talk about that uh, here coming up soon in terms of pacing because there's some validity to that. This one does not start off very fast. There's a bit of warming up for sure. And also due to the fact that King really kind of makes it heavy to dig into at first due to the fact that he's putting forth to the reader a lot of grief and a lot of sadness and a lot of rumination, which we're going to talk about more in our next section. But I think because of that, because of this warming up portion of the novel that's a good chunk of the first half, what it does in all great gothic novels is create and build the mood. It absolutely builds the 
the path to doom, the overall mood is established. And once that happens, we start to see some really great stuff. Okay, folks, so for this episode, we're going to talk about the unique elements of Bag of Bones and what King did in this novel that is the start, in my opinion, of some really strong literary King works to follow. Having finished this one, it appears to me that this book may have been the start of some beautiful writing where Du McKee would come forth, Lisi's story, and I thought about those two novels after finishing this one because I feel those previously mentioned books deeply parallel Bag of Bones, and there's a lot to celebrate with Bag of Bones, especially this per potentially being the start of this wonderful trend in King writing. So after the unique elements, we're going to take a look at characters in our heroes, villains, and honorable mentions section, and then we'll explore what's working in the story, what's not as strong, and then we're also going to conclude by taking a look and discussing the 2011 three-part Bag of Bones miniseries that played on AMC, I believe, starring Pierce Brosnan as Mike Noonan. I just finished that up and I'd like to share my thoughts with you on that. Um, but before we head into our unique element section, let's have a quick summary. Best-selling author Mike Noonan is 36 years old when his wife Joanna suddenly dies of a brain aneurysm. Four years later, unable to write after her passing, Mike tries to find solace and healing in their vacation home near Dark Score Lake. Mike moves into the house, trying to move on, trying to write again, and he soon meets three-year-old Kyra and her 20-year-old single mother, Maddie DeVore. They're both in need of friendship, legal assistance, and Mike now hearing strange noises and receiving odd dreams and messages in the home he used to share with Joanna, promises to help Kyra and Maddie, all while trying to understand what ghostly presence is inhabiting, inhabiting not only the lake house, but the long generations of folk tucked away in the small community off Highway TR-90. Alright guys, let's get into it. Thanks for hanging with me through thick and thin, long tangents, and <laughs> shenanigans. Let's grab some snacks and drinks and hop in the car because we're leaving Mike Noonan's house in Derry and we're headed up north to Dark Score Lake. I'll see you in our next section. Welcome everyone to the home of Mike and Joanna Noonan called Sarah Laughs, located along the township off the TR-90, where we're going to settle in and talk about the reason why Bag of Bones, I think, should be given more credit and explored a bit more by new readers and constant readers. 
So I have three topics I want to explore with you. One of them has four subcategories, and then we'll also look at an example from the text in this section before we head into heroes, villains, and honorable mentions. So this might be my most meaty, long-winded section of the episode, just a heads up, but we've got some good stuff to talk about. So to start us off, I want to talk about how this is a ghost story, most definitely, ghosts everywhere, all over the place, but it is also a love story that's woven together quite well, but altogether, this novel is a really awesome example of modern gothic. So before we nerd out on that topic, which I'm chomping at the bit to do, let's look at our first point, which is what I'm calling King's Ghostly Cookbook. So with this novel, I think what's unique is that when King was striving for a story about a man who is haunted, he goes all out, guys. He provides a huge buffet spread of ghostly activity that pretty much swallows our main character, Mike Noonan. Mr. King, with this story, pulls out pretty much every trope and motif associated with ghost stories, and he is not subtle about any of it. It's very much as if he's saying to the reader, you want a ghost story? You're getting a ghost story. (laughs) That's really how it feels, especially when I was compiling all my notes of all the ghostly activity that I viewed here. It's it's a long list. So the first one we're going to talk about is you can see through them. So in the story, we don't start seeing physical apparitions of people for quite a while in the book. But when we do, King writes that when Mike Noonan is looking at them, he can see through them. So this is very cliche. I think that all of us have witnessed this type of ghost throughout film and literature maybe our entire lives, but it works. I think King makes it his own and it it's working in regards to this particular tale, the water being the backdrop. They're sort of there, but not just barely ethereal, um, sort of in this world, sort of in another. Uh, What's also interesting is the nicer characters or the ghosts who aren't villains look very much whole and alive as if they were, you know, looked upon kindly in death or whatever um, limbo they might be floating in. Uh, However, the ghosts that are definitely villains or associated with pretty despicable people look decayed, scary, very dead, um, rotted, not the most pleasant ghost to behold. Uh, But they all have that floaty quality which we've been reading about and watching in film and books forever, forever. It's present here, very classic, it does work, and at the point to which we start seeing the ghosts or Mike is telling the reader what he's saying, at that point I've already suspended all, you know, I've just suspended all expectations, so I'm okay with it. I'm okay that it is a classic, mm, cliche yes motif, but it works. I, I was on board with it. Number two, 
our second subheading, prophetic dreams and possession. So for you constant readers out there, King really does amazing things when he writes about dream sequences, and there are quite a few dreams in this novel that are scary, often associated with very surprising guests attached to them, or they're really druggy and trippy and weird with all kinds of random objects and images that do show up later and have strong meaning as they help Mike uncover the mystery he's been plunged into, the mystery of the town, its inhabitants, the lake, as well as what was going on with his own marriage to Joanna, lots of good stuff. But we have several dreams, and the dreams in this novel seem to always be leading Mike to do something, always guiding him to where he needs to be and what he needs to do. So that's a large element in what King's doing here with the haunting motif. In terms of possession, one of the biggest reoccurring moments throughout the story is that Mike consistently feel feels, <laughs> not fills, but feels his mouth and nose are flooded with lake water. He can taste it, he feels the cold, minerally suffocating presence of it, and he's often gagging up next to nothing, but has the sensation that he's drowning and swallowing lots of water. The water aspect is, of course, a huge part to the uh, very cool mystery as there are several drowned people um, who uh, have met their fate in Darkscore Lake. They have a large plot presence um, as well as the town itself, but Mike physically feels it. He physically uh, feels the sensation of drowning more than once. And another sort of physical possession he undergoes, this one's also sort of psychological as well, he kind of has this transporting uh, much bigger than a dream to where he does transport to another time where he can smell and touch and feel what it must have been like a hundred years prior. He is in a perhaps deep state of hypnotic possession where he is a hundred years in the past. So with the notion of demonic possession, which is really dramatic and gnarly, here in Bag of Bones we have a more subtle position, possession in which a presence or entity is really trying to mess with Mike or really trying to get him to pay attention to something. Our third subheading in King's Ghostly Cookbook is poltergeist activity. So when Mike gets to the lake house, there is very little peace and quiet because soon after arriving, we have a full-on arsenal of poltergeist activity in which the ghostly presence inhabits inanimate objects, especially electricity. So quite suddenly there's physical movement around the house. Uh, one of the very key objects in the story is a little bell wrapped around a moose head that's mounted in the living room and the bell will often ring out of nowhere. Just start ringing, which is very, very similar to Dickens for all of you Christmas Carol fans out there concerning Jacob Marley and all the ghosts of Christmas past. Um, or yeah, all the ghosts, the Christmas ghosts arriving with the bell. Um, 
the clock, all that good stuff. Dickens is present. Uh, but we've got refrigerator magnets moving around, spelling messages. We have jars of flour that get tipped over with more messages written in the spilled powder. We have cabinets and doors shutting, lights flickering. We have random sounds of screaming, children crying, water splashing. We have computer keys typing out things. So these ghosts are moving stuff, guys. They are physically making things happen or they're also filling one's mind and five senses with unexplainable phenomena, which is mega creepy, especially with the terrible smells. I always hate that concerning ghosts. That's a real creepy one. And that is present in this book specifically concerning the lake and the scent of, well, scent is a more positive connotation, stench rather, of death, decay, water, raw damp, mold, all the yuckiness, and the physical five sense stuff makes the ghosts pretty intolerable in terms of, um, yes, when they, when it comes to specifically manifesting and physically interacting with inanimate objects to scare the hell out of people, it's, uh, it's pretty tough stuff for the character of Mike Noonan in which these ghosts are pulling him in a couple different directions. Our last subheading in this category is psychic knowledge. So this is a big one, and I think this is the biggest haunted element Mike contends with in the novel as he experiences it pretty intensely toward the conclusion of the story where after all three of the previous elements mentioned have really been working on him over a period of weeks, he's able to see the past because a certain ghost slash ghosts are showing him what happened. So psychic stuff, as many of us know, is all over King's work, all over everywhere, but this chunk is pretty subtle concerning Mike. It kind of just appears out of nowhere a little bit, which I'll discuss in greater detail in our last section. But shortly after moving back to Sarah Laughs, Mike just knows certain things. When he picks up the phone, he knows what the person is wearing, he knows who is in the room with them. It's kind of an interesting take in regards to coming back to Sarah Laughs, this old house full of secrets, and how Mike is for the most part, a normal average Joe who, as he comes back, has become more enhanced because of this connection to the house and the connection to whatever his wife Joanna was uncovering before her death. More on that later. So number two, this is our next category in the unique element section, and it's rumination. So as I may have mentioned regarding the overall reception of Bag of Bones, some have called it one of his more literary works, if not his most literary work, as it does reference almost a dozen poets and novelists. So if you're an English major, it feels very comfortable, but uh, if you're just someone who is pretty familiar with lots of fiction authors um, plugged into that scene, it definitely goes down very easy. But more than that, 
King is really taking his time revealing this story to us. And I use the word rumination because with Bag of Bones, I observed how he was in no hurry to to, uh, get to the plot. And for a lot of readers, that's kind of a pain in the ass. But if you approach it from a different angle, it works in reference to what King is trying to build, which is the story of a grieving man who, after the sudden, unexplainable death of his wife, is quickly consumed by the supernatural. And he is kind of forced to follow it. He really has no normal. He has no future. Everything's upside down. And so because of that, King is very slow with the steps, which some readers complained about. Um, But when you, the reader, slow down, there's some great writing to be found and some really cool modern gothic elements being set up to be used later on down the road. So much good stuff. But King allows the reader to slowly get there, not going fast, and he purposely keeps you in the stew pot with lots of description, lots of time in the initial pages to just absorb the woods, the lake, the house, the emotions, the confusion. And like the first half of the book is Mike dealing with Joe's death and attempting to find normal. And there's this kind of uh, random part where he, again, it's just rumination where Mike goes to Florida for a while, he bums around, reads books, goes to the beach, he drinks way too much, and then after a few dreams and a few phone calls, finally starts to make his way up to the vacation home. And in my research of the book, this may have ruffled a few reader feathers because it's uncertain where the story is going up until we get to about 80 pages in and Mike is back at Sarah Laughs. So for those reading this novel for the first time, I encourage having a bit of patience with this one and just gel with King on the page. Take your time paying attention to everything he's showing you because at its core, this novel has a great mystery to it and shortly after arriving back at Sarah Laughs is when a lot of characters get introduced and the lore of the town starts to reveal itself and the reader can really put on their Sherlock Holmes helmet and start viewing everyone as a suspect, which does make for a more interesting reading experience. But rumination is definitely present here and I think the slow burn creates for a very climactic, horrifying reveal most definitely. So be patient with this one as the subject of grief that King is exploring is done in a very real way and grief is slow and often one step forward and two steps back. So don't dive into Bag of Bones ready for a thrill ride. Be patient with it for sure. So yeah, those are my thoughts on the rumination aspect. But before we move forward, I actually wanted to read you an example from the text so you can hear what I'm talking about in regards to this stewing, slow stirring of the soup. Notice how King is really taking his time, providing plot details, and for the most part, just focused on creating an overall mood. This is on page 77. 
I drove in two-tenths of a mile by the odometer, listening to the grass, which crowned the lane, wickering against the undercarriage of my car, listening to the occasional branch which scraped across the roof or knocked on the passenger side like a fist. At last, I parked and turned the engine off. I got out, walked to the rear of the car, lay down on my belly, and began pulling all of the grass which touched the Chevy's hot exhaust system. It had been a dry summer, and it was best to take precautions. I had come at this exact hour in order to replicate my dreams, hoping for some further insight into them or for an idea of what to do next. What I had not come to do was start a forest fire. Once this was done, I stood up and looked around. The crickets sang as they had in my dreams, and the trees huddled close on either side of the lane as they always did in my dreams. Overhead, the sky was a fading strip of blue. I set off, walking up the right-hand wheel rut. Joe and I had one neighbor at this end of the road, old Lars Washburn, but now Lars's driveway was overgrown with juniper bushes and blocked by a rusty length of chain. Nailed to a tree on the left of the chain was no trespassing. Nailed to one on the right was next century real estate and a local number. The words were faded and hard to read in the glowing gloom. I walked on, once more cautious, conscious of my heavily beating heart and the way the mosquitoes were buzzing around my face and arms. Their peak season was past, but I was sweating a lot, and that's a smell they like. It must remind them of blood. Just how scared was I as I approached Sarah Laughs? I don't remember. I suspect that fright, like pain, is one of those things that slip our minds once they've passed. What I do remember is a feeling I'd had before when I was down there, especially when I was walking this road by myself. It was a sense that reality was thin. I think it is thin. You know, thin as a lake ice after a thaw, and we fill our lives with noises and light and motion to hide that thinness from ourselves. But in places like Lane 42, you find that all the smoke and mirrors have been removed. What's left is the sound of crickets and the sight of green leaves darkening toward black, branches that make shapes like faces, the sound of your heart in your chest, the beat of the blood against the back of your eyes, and the look of the sky as the day's blue blood runs out of its cheek. What comes in when daylight leaves is a kind of certainty that beneath the skin there is a secret, some mystery both black and bright. You feel this mystery in every breath, you see it in every shadow, you expect to plunge into it at every turn of a step. It is here, you slip across it on a kind of breathless curve like a skater turning for home. I stopped for a moment, about half a mile south of where I'd left the car, and still half a mile north of the driveway. Here the road curves sharply, and on the right is an open field which slants steeply toward the lake. Tidwell's Meadow is what the locals call it, or sometimes the old camp. It was here that Sarah Tidwell and her curious tribe built their cabins, at least according to Marie Hingerman. And once, when I asked Bill Dean, he agreed this was the place, although he didn't seem interested in continuing the conversation, which struck me as odd at, which struck me at the time as a bit odd. I stood there for a moment, looking down at the north end of Dark Score. 
the water was glassy and calm, still candy-colored in the afterglow of sunset, without a single ripple or a single small craft to be seen. The boat people would all be down at the marina or at Warrington's Sunset Bar by now, I'd guessed, eating lobster rolls and drinking big mixed drinks. Later, a few of them, buzzed on speed and martinis, would be bolting up and down the lake by moonlight. I wondered if I would be around to hear them. I thought there was a fair chance that by then I'd be on my way back to Derry, either terrified by what I'd found or disillusioned because I had found nothing at all. Okay, so hopefully that example kind of illustrated this is, we're going to be in the stew pot for a little bit. Lots of description, lots of building the mood and that slow flame getting higher and higher. Number three is what I'm calling paging Daphne du Maurier. So I am very happy and giddy to report to my friends that one of the reasons why Bag of Bones is such an enjoyable study is that King directly references and was inspired by one of my favorite gothic novels, a novel that is referred to as the great modern gothic, and that is Daphne du Maurier's 1938 classic, Rebecca. Ooh, you guys, okay, I'm almost like clapping. Um, so I'm going to give you a mini breakdown of what Rebecca is about in just a second for those of you who haven't read it because I do think it's really important. But with Bag of Bones, King is shouting from the rooftops on how much Rebecca sort of fertilized the ground on bringing this story to life. And it's one of the reasons why I think Bag of Bones is in this very cool literary category like I mentioned previously in the rumination section. But in an interview with Simon and Schuster, that same interview actually, he talks about how in Rebecca there is a strong presence of, quote, secrets that are kept combined with appearances that deceive. And he channeled that for Bag of Bones. And King says in that same interview with Simon and Schuster, when I sat down to write Bag of Bones, I thought about Rebecca. And so I cannot tell you just how deeply and closely uh, this novel gets to Rebecca. And if you have not read Daphne du Maurier's novel, oh my friends, I just highly, highly recommend it as it's totally wonderful. Um, and it's all over Bag of Bones. It totally is. The house, the secrets, the female foreboding presence. And he mentions more than once in the story the character of Danvers, who I'll tell you about in just a second. But there is the quote, Last night I dreamt I went to Manderley again. And this is used about three times within Bag of Bones, within the first, I'd say, 100 pages. This is the first line in the novel Rebecca, the very first phrase, sentence in the novel Rebecca. So... If you're like me and you already like Rebecca, it makes Bag of Bones that much more enjoyable. If you've read Bag of Bones and you enjoyed it, please read Rebecca, guys. You'll, it's just 
it's a treat to see it mirrored so closely. I think they're kind of twin flames a little bit in terms of, for those of us who have read King for a while, he does a really wonderful job of taking a novelist he respects and admires and being inspired by it but yet creating something that's 100% his. So we have this very special relationship present, which I really, really enjoy. So super duper quick synopsis, Rebecca is the story about a young lady's maid who, if I'm correct, she is nameless. She is our main narrator, and I don't think she has a name in the story, which is pretty genius. More on that in a minute. But she's a lady's maid, and she's on a trip in the French Riviera, She's working for this older woman, and there she meets a super handsome, very foxy guy named Maxim de Winter in, I think they're in Monaco, Monte Carlo, one of those places. And right away they have a whirlwind, intriguing weekend, and he's like, you know what? Be my wife. Come live in my mansion. I love you. I'm super into you. And our gal is like, yes, yes, of course. So they get married super quick really quick honeymoon and then she follows Max home to this sprawling gorgeous estate called Manderley that I believe is in the south of England maybe Cornwall don't kill me England <laughs> I'm sorry if I screwed that up um I think it's south but anyway she gets to Manderley it's beautiful she's in love with it and it's now half hers as she is the new Mrs. De Winter and once inside this home we meet Mrs. Danvers. She is the caretaker or more appropriately the house manager. She is very prickly, very crotchety, very over the top and we soon learn the name of Max's first wife, the now deceased Rebecca. And I think before they got married, he did tell our narrator he was married before, but it was kind of in a my wife died kind of thing. I'm a widower, pity me, love me. Pretty sure, but I actually do need to go back and reread it as I'm not 100% sure. But Mrs. Danvers is very, is and was very, very fond of Rebecca, like mega all about her. And I remember in grad school, one of my discussions was about Danvers and Rebecca's unrequited lesbianism because this lady Danvers adores Rebecca, just absolutely is obsessed with her. And our narrator soon realizes that this home of Manderley, this woman Rebecca is everywhere. Every inch of this place is this woman. Everything is monogrammed with the letter R. Everything is about how Rebecca loved it this way, th this way, that way, her favorite food, her favorite color, the clothes she wore, the letters she wrote, the horses she rode, and Max is very reluctant to talk about her, and there's a lot of intrigue for the reader regarding her poor narrator and now she's trapped in this prison house surrounded by the memory of this woman and her new husband is super shady and not revealing everything he knows and plus what everyone knows about Rebecca was that she's this saint this beautiful angel human that did no wrong the circumstances of her death are very odd and uh, slowly but surely oh my god it's so great guys it's a novel that is compulsively readable to this day it's aged so well and our main nameless narrator is this precious little lamb to the slaughter 
And what's compelling is that we see her unravel from the stress of this situation. All the tension and everything that's being kept from her gives her this feverish desire to learn the truth, which we see quite a bit with Mike Noonan. It's great. I know it might sound from my description a little bit chiclet, but it's much deeper than that, I promise. If King can find the depths, you can too. It's a slow burn and the House of Manderley, how lonely and afraid and obsessed our narrator becomes is very much like this gas burner getting turned up higher and higher. It's one of the greats, truly one of my all-time favorite gothic novels, and I think having read the story assisted so well with how deeply I absorbed the impact of Sarah Laughs as a spooky house, the female darkness inhabiting the house. It's very cool, and I love that King was inspired by this story. So to recap my three categories within the unique elements, number one, King's Ghostly Cookbook, and under there we've got our four subcategories of You Can See Through Them, Prophetic Dreams and Possession, Poltergeist Activity, Psychic Knowledge, number two, Rumination, number three, Paging Daphne du Maurier. So thank you guys so, so much for hanging with me. Let us now go for a walk down by the lake on this fine sunny day. Dark Score Lake is looking very still and tranquil right about now, so let's head that way and discuss some characters within the novel Bag of Bones. Up next! Hello, hello everyone, and welcome to our character analysis section entitled Heroes, Villains, and Honorable Mentions. And this is the chunk in the episode where I cherry pick some of my favorite characters in the story and we uncover them in greater detail. And in my exploration today, we have an all-female lineup, which was unexpected, but it totally works as I felt it would go well with the novel very strong female presence. But overall, regarding the characters within this novel, aside from our main protagonist Mike Noonan, we don't have too much overly in-depth character explorations like we do in a lot of his work. For those of us constant readers, or if you've read a couple King books, you're probably aware his strength is in character. I think he has strengths in many, many other places, but one of the biggest areas where King is just top of the pile, top of his game, is with character. But every now and again, we do get a novel where we don't really have a lot of that, uh, but the character development we do have is pretty great. Um, so with this story, it's to be reminded that King is building a really multi-layered mystery surrounding the town and the small community living off the TR. Uh, we're going back generations, so he's really creating a deep level of lore. But aside from those mostly flat characters that we're encountering, we're mostly, as readers, 
orbiting Mike Noonan and his love for his late wife, Joanna. So everyone, I would say, aside from a few uh, supporting cast members, everyone else is in this novel is just a face in the mystery. Lots of names mentioned in this novel as we get deeper into some of the big town lore, but one of the most developed characters, of course, is Mike and Joe and their marriage. I think those are actually our main two. So considering the rumination, the ruminating nature of grief and loss and love and a mystery in the middle of all that, I think it's okay that we don't have a huge amount of character development. Uh, I think it's it's okay that we don't. Uh, so the characters I do have on the menu to discuss with you today were very good players in the story, so I'd like to see what you think. Number one is a two-parter, because uh, I think it's sort of like a one-and-a-half character, um, and this is Kyra and Maddie DeVore. They are two of our heroes within the novel. And these two females are such rays of sunshine in the text, my friends. Uh, this area where Sarah laughs and Darkscore Lake is located, even though it's summer, it's hot, it's muggy, there is a very foreboding presence surrounding Mike and this location. But Kyra and her mom Maddie are just absolute light bringers. Kyra is three years old and she's as cute as can be and King makes her a very delightful, precocious three-year-old. And of course, toward the end of the story, blessed little Kyra really goes through a lot, as many children within the King universe do, but she's a really light-hearted presence and brings a lot of charm to the novel. She made me smile quite a bit. She's just like a precious little three-year-old who says, crazy stuff and it's it's wonderful being a kid in a king book so she's lovely Maddie DeVore her mom is 20 and her husband Lance was killed tragically I want to say not too long before Mike arrives in town she's a librarian who lives in a trailer she's pinching pennies trying to live life when her rich albeit evil father-in-law wants custody of Kyra, so when Maddie meets Mike, he is definitely someone very positive for her life and Kyra's life, and the two of them are doing the exact same thing for Mike. And this is where we get this wonderful little sproutling, spudling little bud of romance start to germinate a little tiny bit. It is a nice part of the novel because the reader for quite a bit of time has to watch Mike go through such pain and loss and even though there is a large age difference between them, which, side note, is a very prevalent occurrence in gothic novels, if you guys didn't know that. Many times you have a significantly older man and a much younger woman. Don't know why that is, uh, it's just sort of a thing. But uh, the two of them, Maddie and Mike, connect and it's genuine and they do have a genuine attraction for each other and a very deep realistic love for one another. Yeah, I think that we could probably say that there is love um, early, new, mostly sexual attraction kind of love, but I, I think that there it's there. Um, but looking at the character of Maddie DeVore, 
she is a damsel, 100% a damsel. And Mike Noonan is trying to find purpose after losing Joe and not being able to write like he used to. So helping this damsel is a big win for him in the fact that it represents maybe a carrot that Mike thinks Joe may want him to follow or do something with, or rather some other entity in the house he doesn't know about might want him to pursue Maddie. It's kind of hard to say. That is one of the more mysterious elements of the book. Mike himself is not really sure, um, but all Mike has is just these weird dreams and all this weirdness and uncertainty. So he's trying his best to put one foot in front of the other and one can't help but enjoy the sweetness between the potential of new love and new life, which is what is found between Maddie and Mike, which I love all that mushy stuff. I don't care. Make fun of me all you want. I think it's great. I, I think there's always something nice when you have a lot of sadness and then you get these little breadcrumbs of something sweet. So I enjoyed it. Maddie's character doesn't go very deep, which I think could have been improved upon, but having finished the book, I think she's more of a symbol rather than a huge part of Mike's life or yeah, I think she represents something much more than actually being a huge player in the novel, but more on that in a little bit. Number two is our villain, Rogette Whitmore. So this lady is terrible and old and scary, and I bring her up because she surprised me a little bit. So there's a guy, Max DeVore, Maddie DeVore's father-in-law. He is the big bad of our story. So he is over 80 years old. He's the one causing Maddie DeVore um, trouble and giving Mike trouble for helping Maddie. But enter this very strange woman named Rogette Whitmore. She is Max DeVore's assistant slash caretaker similar to maybe uh, Mrs. Danvers in Rebecca, perhaps. She's always by his wheelchair. She's always sort of silently snickering and insulting and very much like a perfect little uh, Igor <laughs> lab lackey to the mad scientist. She, But the reason why I decided to mention this lady is because one of the big climactic scenes um, or one of the most uncomfortable action scenes we have in the novel happens when Max DeVore, Roka, and Mike have a confrontation near the lake. And this crazy wench is ordered from Max to heave rocks at Mike as he's trying to run away and then trying to swim away, uh, swim for his life. She hits him several times and it's a really, really uncomfortable, awful scene, guys. I uh, never under underestimate rocks, my friends. My god, rocks are so deadly. And King always reminds us of that. Um, 
The novel It has a pretty epic rock fight in the Barrens between the Losers Club and Henry Bowers and his evil gang. It's a pretty good one, and I'm sure there are more throughout his work, but this one was very one-sided as this, you know, Mike was not able to throw very many rocks back, if I remember correctly, and this evil old hag was just hitting Mike all over his body with decently sized rocks and really messing him up. And I pretty much wanted her dead from that moment. She nearly killed him. He was hit in the head, he almost drowned, and it was, I think, had the presence of Joe not interfered and helped him, he probably would have died. So the scene itself is a real nail biter on whether or not he makes it. And she is, of course, unfortunately, one of those king villains that just lives forever and ever. <laughs> like, just takes forever for them to get that comeuppance. I'm not going to reveal too much on the fate of Roguette, but she is, to me, in this novel, like a malignant fungus that is always around, but yet it's unwise to underestimate her as she is the crooked right hand of a devil who does a lot of dirty work, is a part of a lot of manipulation and lies and secrets and, uh, you know, sleight of hand sneakiness. And I was very surprised by Roguette. I was like, oh man, I didn't see that coming. Um, but there is something very scary about a seemingly feeble old woman who springs into action, like uh, just this athletic reserve um, launching rocks at you. Very chilling. So Roguette Whitmore, assistant to big bad Max DeVore, I am not a fan, but found her interesting enough in her creepiness to mention her here and uh, the fact that she shouldn't be underestimated. So like the character of Mrs. Danvers in Rebecca, she shouldn't be underestimated, well not one bit. Number three, my last female bringing up our character analysis exploration is the late great Joanna or Joe Noonan. So I wanted to bring up another female in this lineup, another female hero I should say, as this is a novel as I've mentioned with a ton of female energy. I can't preface that enough guys, it's both positive female energy and negative female energy. And Joanna is very, 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 very connected to Tabitha King. And this is according to Steve in the Simon & Schuster interview um, that I think Joanna really uh, represents maybe some of the things that King loves the most about Tabitha. But what I liked about the character of Jo is she is a drac jack of all trades. Um, and based on her life with Mike, she was just this incredibly supportive woman, very loving wife, but she also had her own life full of projects and committee meetings and she was just jam-packed with her own idiosyncrasies and I love I love that in this character and I love Joe because it's always nice to see 
a woman who is 100% who she is. This lady is just fully herself and it's a strong self. She's not a wilting flower. She's not a subservient presence. She's modern and strong-willed. She goes after stuff and in doing so, she did keep some things from Mike, which creates the big mystery for the reader on whether or not these secrets from Joe were for Mike's benefit or not. But concerning Joe, we come to find out within the novel she was doing some research about certain things that interested her, and this creates a bit of a tangled web in which Joe's fate gets caught up in the very big mess on the TR. But her presence throughout the novel, and this is what I found pretty interesting, sometimes it's spooky, sometimes it's very unwelcomed, and one is like, I, there were several times as I was reading about Joe, I was like, oh my god, Joe, go away, you're scary. And then other times it's very warm and good, and you're like, okay, Joe is looking out for him. She is gonna protect him, she's gonna help, um, and we see this especially when Joe is in the same space as other ghost entities who perhaps aren't as kind. We really see Joe's strength there. But Mike Noonan, I'm not going to mention too much about him because this really, this novel is the Mike Noonan show, so you get to know all about this man. He is, of course, the best-selling author. It is definitely a personified Steve. Um, we've got a lot of novelists within King's universe. I always like them because I feel that when Steve's writing about a writer, we're directly seeing Steve. So uh, what I, as I mentioned with Maddie DeVore being a damsel, Joe is not, but she is absolutely the center of Mike Noonan's world. And I think Tabitha is at the center of Steve's. I, I just do. I think, I think a lot of us think that. I think she's absolutely the cream in his coffee, the apple of his eye. Like, um, hearing Steve King talk about his wife, Tabitha, it's, it's some goals for you there, ladies. He's, he's pretty great. Um, however, we're going to segue a little bit because Joe is very much the center of Mike Noonan's heart, his world when he's not writing, but I couldn't help but draw a huge comparison to Lisey's story with the character of Joe. Um, so Lisey's story, I'm not going to talk too much about it. You can revisit my early episode on that novel, but that is a story uh, heavily fixated on marriage and the enduring love of a writer and his wife. And we have a very similar kind of vibration here with Mike Noonan and Joe, as well as Lisey and Scott Landon. Lisey's story, of course, goes way deep into uh, the bonds of this couple because Scott Landon is the real mystery. But Joe and Mike are your really well-matched, loving couple, normal people who were making it work and wanted a long future together until the dark hand of fate and the curse of Darkscore Lake stepped in. But as I've kind of mentioned, I think I mentioned um, previously, this story orbits around Lisey's story quite a bit. Um, in terms of the overall um, devotion between a husband and wife, 
even in death and that's very special and I think for Joanna Noonan what we do learn about her and what we do see about her through flashbacks is she was a perfect supportive match for Mike Noonan but she's also a very cool devoted strong-willed female who was 100% herself. She was, yeah, very cool. Um, so I really like the loving presence of Joanna Noonan throughout this novel and the fact that sometimes it's a little creepy too. Like she frightens Mike sometimes. Maybe because she was getting frustrated that he wasn't really figuring out her messages or her desires or whatever it is. So there's a lot of complex Joanna Noonan stuff within this novel that is very cool to analyze. And it's also really heartwarming and tragic to see Mike just hopelessly devoted to her even four years after she's passed and um yeah it's it's a wonderful rumination on love and marriage and long-term relationships and true partnership maybe even true soulmates if you liked bag of bones guys and you haven't read lisey's story do it i know lisey's story gets a lot of flack for being really weird and it is really weird but it's also incredibly enjoyable so i encourage you to explore lisey's story if you did enjoy the relationship between Mike and Joanna Noonan. So that is all I have. Not too, too much on the character section. Um, Mike Noonan, of course, is our best-selling author, our Steve King in residence. Uh, he's a great character for sure, but I wanted to stay focused on the females for this section. So uh, I think we, I see some clouds in the distance surrounding the lakes. So we might want to head back inside to Sarah Laughs and see what the ghosts want us to do this time. So meet me in our last section of what's working and what's not. See you there. Thank you for sticking with me. We have made it to our last section exploring 1998's Bag of Bones, and this is the chunk of the episode where we take a look at some of my favorite parts, what I felt was working really well, as well as exploring what fell a little flat, what made me a little mad, what I wish might have been edited out completely. Uh, but we're also going to take a look at the 2011 miniseries of Bag of Bones, directed by Mick Garris, that premiered on AMC uh, almost 10 years ago, starring Pierce Brosnan as Mike Noonan. But when it comes to what's working, uh, I, for the most part, have already hinted that I personally am loving the pacing of this novel, and the overall word of the day is rumination, and I enjoy the rumination that King is bringing forth. I know that many don't agree with me on that, which is why I feel Bag of Bones is an underrated novel, but when you look at the nature of gothic novels, if you guys have ever read in your lives previously, uh, Weathering Heights, Jane Eyre, Rebecca, um, The House on the Strand, 
The haunting of Hill House. We have always lived in the castle. A host of anything from Lovecraft, anything from Poe. You know, we've got gothic stuff everywhere. And because of that, you, if you've read gothic novels in the past, you have most likely read that there is a lot of emphasis put on mood and positioning the pieces. And because of that, the pacing is working well. I'm also super into the blossoming romance. I enjoyed that. Granted, I like romance in all areas. I don't like cheesy romance, um, mind you, so it has to be a well-earned romance. And I think when it's well-earned, when it's well-written, when it's coming together nicely, it is something to celebrate in the text. I'm also really celebrating the very large, over-the-top, haunting picnic blanket that King shrouds over this work. So good. He just goes for it. We get so much just absolute all over the place dramatic haunting content and if you're a fan of ghost stuff like myself this is a thrill ride for sure albeit a slow burning thrill ride but once you get going and you're locked in it's great i'm also a drooling fan of rebecca and daphne du maurier so i love the fact that king was inspired by that novel and how from that inspiration he's made his very own mystery with some quintessential king components so one of my favorite scenes is toward the climax unfortunately it might be in that dreaded chapter 28 but um there is quite literally a bag of bones and what king does with it is very cool it's just such a well-written scene um the phrase bag of bones is tossed around quite a bit through the novel as just uh, explaining a tired person or a hapless character or how really every human is is just a bag of bones whether in various stages of their lives meaning they don't have significant purpose attached to them or wherever they are in life's journey it's a very multi-layered phrase but he also surprises the reader at least i was when we do have a literal a bag of bones and very haunting, very well done scene, true horror, true macabre, very old school, and this scene in which Mike encounters the bag of bones, oh my god, I just loved it. So good. So if anything, get yourself to that scene, guys. It's just so, so good. One of my favorite scenes out of the entire book. So well written. All right, we are going to now segue into what I wasn't a fan of. We've got two things to discuss. Number one, why psychic Kyra? <laughs> so, remember little Kyra, Maddie DeVore's three-year-old daughter? So, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, Mike started to get his own clairvoyant abilities. Is clairvoyant the right word? It might not, because he wasn't necessarily... Yeah, yeah, I think it works. Um, he was getting some precognitive abilities based on his connection to the house, his possession from the house, and the ghostly presence inhabiting him, his mind, his dreams, the overall all-consuming haunting from the house Sarah laps and those inside it. However, 
why in the heck is a little three-year-old girl exuding those same things? So, okay, so uh, when I was trying to figure this out, in the story, it is revealed why Kyra would be potentially able to see and have this ability, and without revealing too much plot, it's because there are some bloodline connections that Kyra possesses as well as Mike Noonan possesses between those who have the last names Noonan and Devor. The descendants are kind of locked into the curse and the fate of what went down on Darkscore Lake, aka the hideous, horrendous scene that has scarred Kim C for life. But why did King have to go there is my big question. Why did he have to go there with this little girl? Mostly, I ask this, and I'm a little perplexed by this, because, guys, when you read Bag of Bones, we have so much stuff going on. Oh my god, we have so much stuff. We are being inundated by haunting stuff, the mystery from Joe's investigation, the terrible Max DeVore and Roguette Whitmore all of this stuff that Mike is dealing with, like, just, we have a jam-packed spread here. And then, little, oh, then, yeah, and then before that, there's also the romance with Maddie, there's helping her out, we're just inundated, we're drowning in it, and then little Kyra is able to mind meld with Mike a few times, and see into his mind, and him into hers, and when that happened, guys, I'm, if you could see me now, I'm just vehemently shaking my head, and that's what I did when I encountered this in the novel. I was, I shake my head, Steve, and I just, I just kind of want to tell him, Steve, I know this is your thing, but this table is overflowing with stuff. Please pump the brakes and do not go down that road. Don't go down the road of psychic children because we don't have room. We just don't have room. I really feel we don't. And here's what happened. When I started to read that little Kyra had some precognitive stuff, rather than absorbing it like I would with any other psychic child I encounter in King's work, with excitement, with intrigue, with um, mystery, and I'm rooting for them right away. I'm cheering for, for the psychic child. When I encountered this with Kyra, I was just mad. I was just sort of annoyed and peeved, and it felt like too much. It, just too much, Steve. We have enough. You've positioned so many plot points. Leave this little girl alone. Leave her alone. Just let her be little and normal. Not every child needs to be psychic. Just let her be a little girl. This story is not really about Kyra. Anyway, it's really not. It's about Joe and their marriage, and it's mostly about the town. It's about Darkscore Lake. It's about what Joe had uncovered. It's a little bit about Maddie. She, Kyra is a pretty big pie piece. But no, Steve, I just want to tell him, like, I know psychic kids are your thing. I know. I love them. We all love them. No, just no. It doesn't work in this story. The psychic element with Kyra ripped me right out. 
it just made me upset. It took me out of the story. It took me out of the mystery. I was, you know, the haunting of Mike and Sarah laughs, as well as the very complex story being told about the people of the town, that's what I was focused on. And then now I'm wondering, was Cairo, is Cairo a little psychic girl? Like how, what is, so what's not working for me is, is toward, yeah, no, what's not working for me is the latter half of the novel. We have several moments where little baby Kyra is in some sort of psychic connective place with Mike. And unfortunately, listeners, it's just a bit eye-rolling. And I was very surprised I had that reaction. I love psychic children, especially in King's work. I adore them. But unfortunately, it just... I really wish he would have allowed her to be a little girl and that the psychic element would not have crept in. It's fine that Mike has the ability. It makes sense because he is currently being possessed by Sarah Laughs, by the ghost of Sarah Tidwell. You know, there's a lot happening to Mike. So I'm on board that Mike has some psychic powers at this point. But when you started making Kyra, no, I'm sorry. I just, I just wish he could have let Bag of Bones be something different from his usual menu because for me, it was not successful. It comes way too late in the book. Perhaps if Kyra would have been precognitive or demonstrate that earlier in the story before I had to start you know, maintaining lots of spinning plates in my mind from this complex mystery, I could have been on board, but no. Uh, when we start seeing her in these psychic phenomena, I was just like, oh my god, no. Steve, I got too much going on. I can't. So for me, what fell a little flat was Psychic Kyra. So number two is <laughs> the death of romance. Um, so without revealing a lot of the plot outcomes, I would like to maintain uh, relative spoiler-free coverage in my analyses. I do my best. I'm not perfect, but I do my best. Uh, I did mention earlier how much I truly enjoyed the romance between Mike Noonan and Maddie DeVore. However, Unfortunately, through terrible, tragic circumstances, that romance never gets realized. And what I mean by that, uh, specifically, is that Mike and Maddie do not get to have sex. <laughs> and this broke my heart because I, I think it's, I, I wanted them to. I really did. It broke my heart because Mike hasn't been with anyone since Joe died. It's been about four years. And he finally finds this lovely person who has brightened his life significantly, has brought a lot of light and joy. And he also feels like he kind of, in a way, has Joe's blessing to pursue her. And what's sad is that there's a ton of flirtatious buildup between he and Maddie to the point where Maddie has given Mike a key and told him more than once to stop by anytime. She's she wants it so much and he does as well. And it's not that I was craving the carnality of it, but the 
What I was craving was an end to the overall emotional devastation for Mike. Um, and also that Mike would not be associated with this terrible dark hovering cloud that the women he loves or gets close to tragically have dark run-ins with cruel fate. And that's what happens. And for me as the reader, I just think it was a little mean. It was a little too cruel that King didn't give them any time together, sexually, specifically. Um, yes, they had some really sweet romantic dates, which I love a romantic date. King writes really great dates, by the way, guys. We have a beautiful date in the dead zone. We have a great date in Rose Matter. Like, he would be such a fun person to go on a date with. Great dates. I love King dates. And we do have a really great one with he, Maddie, and Kyra and some McDonald's food. It works so well. It's super precious. Um, but I, I really wanted Mike to, the fact that he wasn't allowed or they were not allowed to pursue this romance or that sexual connection, it's just too damn sad. My, that's my problem with it. It's just too sad, especially, you know, when I look at this novel, there's just so much sadness and so much damn sadness and then we get to the freaking ghastly chapter 28 that makes me want to die just thinking about it oh my god guys so much sadness and pain and devastation and steve why couldn't they just have had a weekend together just something where mike could have felt like a whole person again he could have found some peace and some intimacy and some warmth from someone who genuinely cared for him maddie devore wasn't just a pretty face at the bar and a quick screw this was a really nurtured connection and relationship that was built over time the way it should be and i just wish king wouldn't have slammed down the guillotine on this connection so quickly it's oh gosh it's very tragic and unfortunately it makes Bag of Bones too damn sad for me in many ways. So I was not thrilled by that creative decision. I I believe wholeheartedly, reader, listeners, readers and listeners, I think there is such a thing as too much sadness in a story. Uh, personally, I know I might be, you know, uh, if you guys jump back to my coverage on The Long Walk, The Long Walk is a little too sad for me. Uh, I think there's a thing is too much sadness in a story in which, you know, it's very hard for me to find hope and light and look on it with, I don't know, with great interest when it just breaks my heart so deeply. I know in fiction, the kill your darlings notion is alive and well, but this guy, Mike Noonan, his darling has already been killed. Must we take all the darlings for crying out loud? Oh, my friends. Okay. So thankfully, the ending of Bag of Bones is sunny or sunnier. There is a promise of sun. But still, there was just this wonderful rosebud of romance flushed down the toilet and I'm a little cranky about it. So, uh, yeah, it could be that I'm just extra sensitive due to this year's climate, I don't know. 
But to recap, number one, why Psychic Kyra? Number two, the death of romance. Those are the areas I just really wish would have been dealt a little differently concerning Bag of Bones. That's all I have for, um complaints. <laughs> so overall, uh, other than those two chunks, I really was on board for a lot of what King was creating here. Okay, really quick to conclude, we're gonna explore uh, Mick Garris's 2011 three-episode miniseries that aired on AMC starring Pierce Brosnan. So overall, overall, I did enjoy the series for the most part on the grounds that they did stay pretty close to the story content, which is very important for me. They did make a lot of alterations, which sometimes that's okay and sometimes it works. They changed things up a bit, uh, of which I will discuss in just a minute, but I do think it still works. I think the spirit of the story did come forth pretty well for the most part. So I'm gonna start by looking at our main star, Pierce Brosnan, who plays best-selling novelist Mike Noonan. So after I finished the series, guys, I was really 50-50 about Pierce as Mike Noonan. Firstly, when Pierce comes on screen, I should mention, I'm a huge Bond fan. I just am a great character. Um, even though early Bond is very uh, sexist and chauvinist and all the things, um, they're fun movies. They're fun action movies. And uh, I was raised on dude movies with two brothers in the house. However, um, I loved Pierce as James Bond. Unfortunately, I will always see Bond. And Pierce has this wonderful voice that's smooth and suave, and everything about Pierce Brosnan is regal and kind of, I hate to say it, but it's its sexy. It's its a little bit, he is not an average Joe. This is, this is a guy who's very suave all the time, even in like a running tracksuit. There's something very royal about him as well. Um, and I think, as I was watching it, Pierce might be a little too fancy for this role. His demeanor, he's just so high class and special and great. And for me, the character of Mike Noonan is an average Joe, just a really average guy. Um, I was hoping for a more average guy kind of presence. However, on the other hand, I'm really okay with Pierce Brosnan as the role of Mike Noonan because if you guys didn't know, in real life, Pierce Brosnan's first wife passed away from cancer. I want to say in his mid-30s, he they'd been married a long time as well and she passed away and so him as the grieving Mike Noonan, Pierce Brosnan lived it. He 100% already lived the role of Mike Noonan, which was very special in a tragic way. And so on the other hand, I think he's too fancy. And then behind that, he's 
perfect for it. He's the absolute perfect choice because some of the best moments in the series for me was when he was channeling that raw grief and it looks very real. It looks very intensely real because he lived it. So I do think that that was kind of a special connection there that made the role perhaps very, um, he's perfect for it. So night one is very, was pretty successful for me. It's about, I think it's almost an hour and a half, but it's always a joy to see how a film or a series interprets setting. That is my favorite part, especially with King novels, because so much of setting is, oh man, like I've mentioned this in other episodes. I talk about the dairy setting for it. I talk about Castle Rock on the Hulu Castle Rock miniseries. These are some outstanding setting shows where they just knocked it out of the park. They did a great job. I feel this series did a wonderful job making TR90 and Darkscore Lake look amazing. The forest looks great, the little town, all of the shops had the appropriate names. There was the Warrington's Lounge, there's the, uh, the, the diner, I forget what the guy's name was, but there's so much working in the setting. I really enjoyed the cabin of Sarah Laughs, Joe's studio. I am very romanced by setting. It doesn't take a lot to win me over if I feel it was interpreted in a strong way. I think the actress who played Maddie was cast really well, um, as well as Joe. Joe was played by actress Annabeth Gish, who also made an appearance in The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix. Wonderful actress, I'm a big fan of hers. She was a great person to be Joe. Um, they made Kyra a little older. She looks to be about six to seven, but it works. She is a very good little crier, and I'm always impressed by child actors who cry because I know that those are real tears and it makes me so sad and when they can just bring it on it's it's they're talented but I also know that they're probably crying for real so so some of the choices in uh, how they changed a couple things kind of work uh, the timeline in the novel is some of the really terrible stuff is in the 1900s, around 1901, 1902. The series changed it to the late 1930s, which kind of works, but rather than the descendants of the bad people in chapter 28, they have the actual people as old men, which was kind of unsettling. Um, some of the things I didn't exactly like it went pure horror so the series is pure horror from moment one lots of jump scares lots of scary waterlogged makeup bodies uh it revved the terror pretty quickly um we've got some pretty intense injuries a lot of like bloody violent gashes stuff um and i i didn't feel that the novel is that horrifying that quickly so i kind of wish it might have pumped the brakes a little bit on that so night three or the last episode uh guys <laughs> something happened where i don't know uh the action just got a little hokey um the acting 
uh, got a little strange. Um, the rape scene was terrible, but thankfully nowhere as bad as the book, thank God, because I would have passed out and I don't think it could have even been filmed. It's so grotesque. But, um, it... It, it worked according to what happened in the book for the most part. It just got a little uh, unhinged and a little cheesy. I hate to use that word, but that happens sometimes. If you guys jump back to my coverage of Rose Red, the same thing. Night three, I don't know. It just sort of like dissolved, it fizzled, um, right when it shouldn't fizzle, right when it's like all the climactic stuff, it fizzled for me, um, and I wish it kind of would have been handled differently. Uh, Pierce is great, he's tremendous, I think it's just everybody else, it, it fizzled a little bit, and, uh, I, I think they should have made some different writing choices, personally. So, to sum up the three night series, I'm gonna say that I didn't really care for it. Uh, I don't usually grade the films. I try not to rate certain things, but I can't help but give this a giant C minus. Um, maybe a C. Yeah. I just, um, there's something about it. I think they changed a lot of stuff and they went too fast where they should have slowed down. I think it should have maybe been longer than three nights. Um, I, I think a lot more could have been done with this in smarter ways and I think by night three it felt like a rush and the rush didn't work so I didn't really care for it. However, after I finished reading Bag of Bones, I was reminded of another movie because I was thinking about it as I was reading the novel and it's so good. And if you like Bag of Bones, I would say skip the 2011 miniseries and watch 2002's Dragonfly starring Kevin Costner. Oh my gosh, guys, this is such an underrated gem. And I think whoever wrote it, I don't have that person's name right in front of me, whoever wrote this film 100% had to have read Bag of Bones. Like a million times they had to have read it. And they must have been inspired to write it from Bag of Bones because there is so much bleed through. But the film Dragonfly stars Kevin Costner. His wife is a doctor. He's, I think, Joe Darrow and Emily Darrow. She is volunteering as a sort of Doctors Without Borders kind of uh, gig overseas and she dies in a flash flood and it's very sad and he much of the first half of the movie is dealing with that grief and suddenly uh, about six months in he starts getting these very strange visions messages from living people who tell him stuff tell him to to go to a certain place um the notion of the dragonfly is a huge symbol as his wife emily darrow had a dragonfly shaped birthmark on her body he starts seeing dragonflies everywhere tons of symbolism it is a little creepy. There's ghostly moments, there's apparitions, there's some sort of ghostly presence or movement throughout the home, but he follows these breadcrumbs, he listens, he, he 
is unraveling the mystery and he travels to Central America to where she last was. He's taken on this huge journey. Oh my god, guys, it's a wonderful ending. It's it's just it channels Bag of Bones in a much better way than I feel the miniseries does. By all means, check out the miniseries, of course, but watch Dragonfly Dudes and tell me what you think. It's a wonderful movie and I am I'm certain. I would bet a lot of money that whoever wrote Dragonfly read Bag of Bones more than once because it's channeling all of the huge arcs and makes a wonderful, beautiful sort of ghost story, sort of love story with a wonderful sunny ending. Check it out. That is all I have, my friends. Thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate you listening more than you know. From the bottom of my heart, thank you for hanging out with me. If you haven't already, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give me a five-star review. And just a heads up, from now until the end of the year, I'm moving to bi-monthly novel analyses. So I'll see you guys in two weeks with our next novel, which I haven't yet decided on, but you can jump back to last week's episode and explore the book titles I'm mulling over. And feel free to write into the show at underratedsk at gmail. You can say hi or give me any of your novel suggestions for what you would like me to read in these final weeks of the year that won't end. Or you can find us on Twitter or Instagram at underratedskpod. But until then, I'll see you guys in two weeks with our next book. I might have an episode next week on something fun. Not sure, not sure. But thank you guys so much for hanging out. Take care, stay safe, stay warm or cool for my Aussie fans, and wear a mask. Please and thank you. Lots of love. I'll see you soon. Bye-bye.